I don't know how many of you uh, were watching some of the Olympics. I had a chance yesterday to watch some of the archery, and uh, it was uh, one of the early medal, earliest medal rounds. It's what would they call the team archery, where they're shooting. There's three on, on a team, and they shoot in succession, but they go head-to-head, and the United States in the preliminaries had made it through when the first team that they had to go against was Korea who in the preliminaries looked like they were couldn't be beat. They had the first three top scores. These guys were shooting phenomenal. And then their top score broke the world record, and he's legally blind. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of an amazing thing. But we beat them. And so we were in the final with the Italians. And, and they're shooting, and, you know, the good photography they're showing the arrows and it got down and this is for the gold medal and the three American shot and the three Italian shot but it basically got down to the last shooter in each group and it was incredible because the difference between the silver medal which the Americans got and the gold medal was so small the last shot that the American took, the arrow hit just right next to the line that separates the 10 from the 9. The last shot that the last Italian took landed just right next to that line that separates the 9 from the 10. The Americans landed on the 9 side, the Italians on the 10 side. If it had been reversed, the Americans would have won gold by one point. As it was, they lost by one point. That much. You could barely see the difference. You just switch those arrows around. That would have made the difference right there. Seems so little. We know in, in theology and in the church, sometimes some things seem little as well. And, uh, and yet they have made some very big differences. There's a term we have when we come to the confession as we have the Nicene Creed, and uh, it's a term which caused a lot of trouble. And the term is filioque. And it means basically to proceed from the Son. Now when we look at our confession of the Nicene Creed, we talk about the Holy Spirit. And, and we have this phrase, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Now that caused a lot of problem. Understand, when the Nicene Creed was first written, it was first written in 325 at the Council of Nicaea. When they wrote it at that time, they basically said, and I believe in the Holy Spirit, and didn't elaborate on that. Over the years, they decided they better say a little bit more about the Holy Spirit. And so in 381, in the Council uh, in the Council of uh, Constantinople, they added to it, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son. No, I take that back. Who proceedeth from the Father. They stopped there. Over the years, and a lot of the early church fathers uh, decided, well, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Son as well. And so they added that in the Western Church, but not in the Eastern Church. Western Church centered in Rome. Eastern Church centered in Constantinople. In 1054, 
the two churches split. And one of the big issues was this term filioque. Does the Holy Spirit proceed from the Son as well as the Father? Well, the funny thing about it is, really, you don't find much disagreement even among the Eastern Fathers, Church Fathers, that the Holy Spirit, in fact, does proceed from the Son. But it was one of those issues that was a small thing, but added with a few other things, felt that they needed to divide the Church. So we had, at that time, the Roman Catholic Church and now the Eastern Orthodox Church. This, of course, is way before the Reformation. And so there was that great disagreement. And if we look at the scriptures, though, we, we see it quite plain in John 14. If we look at the, the procession uh, from uh, the Father, we see in John 14, 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send. There proceeds from the Father. He says, will send, but what does he say there? He also says, he will send in my name. So that could also imply procession from the Son as well. Here in one chapter over, uh, 15, you, you've got the same thing in verse 26. Here, but the Helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father. So Jesus is saying he's going to send him from the Father. Here again we have the procession uh, of the Son. We go one more chapter in John 16, and we have 7 uh, through 11. We have this... Again, we see, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So you see there's procession from both the Father and the Son. In other words, both the Father and the Son have sent them. Now, the big question is, and you know, I mean, yeah, that occurred. The, the big question is, what does it mean? And what does it mean for us? In the Old Testament, I think there's some differences uh, the passage that Nels read in, in uh, Exodus 31, we see the Holy Spirit being given um, out to Bezalel. And Bezalel had the Holy Spirit in a special way given to him, as it says here, uh, in order that he might uh, craft the things that were going to go into the tabernacle. And so we see the Holy Spirit worked in him. Now, what we see in the, the uh, Old Testament is the Holy Spirit functioning in, in a different way than the new. Indeed, the Holy Spirit obviously is still functioning to give people faith in the Old Testament. Because without faith, uh, I mean, it's impossible to please God and we need the Holy Spirit to believe. But we see in the Old Testament a giving of the gifts more sporadic. In contrast, what Jesus is promising in the New Testament is when the Holy Spirit comes, He's going to be with us and dwell with us. It's not going to be a, a, a more sporadic type of thing, but it's going to be uh, one that is, 
where he is is here and that he's going to give gifts to all and and we're going to see this in a minute so the holy spirit's coming and he's going to do a number of things first he's going to be giving faith he's going to be giving gifts to his people he's going to be helping his people grow in other words we call this the fruit of the spirit or sanctification he's going to be giving the scriptures as he had been earlier and he's also going to be giving illumination of those scriptures that are going to be given. He is also going to be glorifying the Father and the Son. A lot of different things the Spirit's going to be doing. Today I just want to look at two things. First, faith. The Holy Spirit gives us faith. That's his primary office. To give us faith that we might believe in Jesus Christ. And the second one, I want to look at the gifts and and talk about them. But the first one, he gives faith. If you turn in your Bibles to Matthew 16, 13 through 17, we see uh, this aspect of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In Matthew 16, verses 13 through 17. Now when Jesus came into the district of uh, Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You see what Jesus is saying is, you know, Simon, you said right. Who is, you know, when Jesus was asking, who do men say that I am? Who am I? Do you understand who I am? And, of course, he asked, what do other people say? And, and a lot of people were given the answer that you'd hear today. Oh, he's a, he was a very good man. He was a prophet. He was this or that. But then he said, but do, who do you say that I am? And then Peter stands up and he says, you're the Christ the Son of the living God. In other words, you're God and you're the Messiah. Wow. And then he goes on, Jesus goes on to say, guess what, Peter? You didn't figure that out all by yourself. That was a gift that the Father gave you through the Holy Spirit. And that's what we need to understand. If Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. And even that faith isn't of yourself. It's the gift of God, lest any man should boast. Well, why, why do we need the Holy Spirit to even give us this faith? Well, Romans 3.10 tells us that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. He says, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that even seeks after God. Unless the Holy Spirit does it, you're not even going to seek after God. It's quite interesting because, you know, the scriptures tell us, if you seek me, you'll find me. 
But the problem is we won't seek him unless the Holy Spirit encourages us to. And then when we seek him, we come to him. And as uh, we've been studying in the catechism, what happens? Well, we realize our dilemma, our sin. We realize our sin alienates us from God. We realize that we can do nothing about our sin and that the only one who can do that is Jesus Christ and his coming and dying on the cross and rising three days later. That's the only thing that can take away our sin. And then we rest on that. That's what saving faith is. Where we're at the point where we say, I can't save myself, I'm trusting Jesus and him alone to save me. And so that's the primary office of the Holy Spirit, to bring people to faith. But he does so much more. And so one of those things is the gifts of the Spirit. There's great emphasis today on the gifts of the Spirit. Um, there's three main passages in the Scriptures that talk about the gifts of the Spirit. Romans 12 is one, 1 Corinthians 12, which uh, Nels read earlier, is one, and then Ephesians chapter 4. If you look at all those descriptions of the gifts of the Spirit, they're all different. They're all different. And one of the things I think that it, it, we can understand by them is to look at some of those lists, and some of those lists focus on office, some of those gifts focus on different things, but one of the things that we can draw by seeing the differences of all these gifts is that none of them are exhaustive. I don't think they were ever intended to be exhaustive gifts of the Spirit, but they've got some very good ones in there and there's some very significant ones. So we have all these gifts. And by the way, one of the gifts of the Spirit that is never mentioned in those lists is music. Why? I think it goes without saying. I think many people recognize that if, if uh, you have a gift of music, that's a gift of the Spirit. As some other things may well be in there. But there are a number of things that I want to, to, to understand about the gifts of the Spirit. First off, their universality. There's a universality about the gifts of the Spirit in the sense that everybody has some gift. God has given everybody some gift. And when I say everybody, all of the believers, all the believers in Jesus Christ, he has given some gift that he desires them to use. But there's also a non-universality aspect of it, and we saw it in 1 Corinthians 12, and that is that not all have the same gift. There's a diversity. And, and we shouldn't grab one gift and say everybody's going to have to have that gift, especially if they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and I'll get into it later, but one of the problems is that tongues has often been isolated to say that unless you have the gift of tongues, you really don't have the Holy Spirit. Well, according to 1 Corinthians 12, that's nonsense. Some people have that gift and some don't. And uh, we'll look at that a little bit more as well. The third thing is the gifts are not absolute. That is, you may have a gift, but God may withdraw it. Remember the gift that Samson had? All this mighty strength. Cuts his hair. 
strength didn't rest in his hair. But God withdrew it. At that point, he became weak. Just like other men. And, and in fact, sometimes the gifts may not work. Remember, Jesus sent out his disciples and they had the gifts to heal and to do everything. And then, remember, a man came up and he said, my son has this evil spirit and I took him to your disciples and I couldn't do anything. And Jesus said, oh, that's true. And then Jesus cast the spirit out of him. But for us, we can't always say that uh, we can, uh, even if we have a gift, that we can utilize that in a certain way. Um, we cannot manipulate God. Then we can uh, understand that having a spiritual gift is not an indication of our spiritual condition before God. And I want to re refer this especially to tongues. There are some people who talk about tongues, you know. I have the gift of tongues, therefore I must be spiritual. Not true. Not true at all. Look at the, the, the passage that we have here in, in 1 Corinthians. Paul is writing to the, to the Corinthian church. And they have all these people who have the gift of tongues. They have emphasized that gift. And what does Paul say? When I write to you, I cannot write to you as spiritual, but as carnal. He's saying, yeah, you may have this gift, but guess what? You're really not expressing the fruit of the Spirit of God. You're not acting very spiritual at all. You're acting more like worldly people. And he also says, I cannot write, and I cannot treat you as, as mature, but as babes. These things don't necessarily, uh, you know, show uh, these these things, you know. And that another aspect, even to the point where some unbelievers can be expressing gifts. If you look in Matthew chapter seven, twenty-two and twenty-three, um, Jesus talks about individuals. Matthew 7, 22 and 23, he says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, O you workers of lawlessness. Even in 1 Corinthians 13, and by the way, you know, when you look at that expression of gifts, it should be taken, 1 Corinthians 12 should be taken with 1 Corinthians 13 and 1 Corinthians 14 as a whole. Paul is really looking at that as a whole right there. And, and basically, you know, in 1 Corinthians 13, he starts, he starts talking to them and he says, guess what, you know? I can speak with the tongues of men and angels if I don't have love. I'm nothing. Clanging symbol. Have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries. Here he's looking at some of these gifts. 
and if I do, and I can have faith to remove mountains, and and uh, if I give all I weigh to you know, and give my body to be burned, but I don't have love, I have nothing. Paul is saying, look, these gifts are no indication of your spiritual condition or your closeness to me. Now, I'm not saying that there's no relationship there, but I'm saying that it's not a direct relationship. We shouldn't be looking at that. In addition to that, gifts, even though God may give us gifts, they take work. You can be very gifted, but God expects you to work on that gift. I can only think about the, the swimming events yesterday. One of the greatest swimmers. No. He's had more gold medals, more world records. The greatest swimmer so far of all time, Michael Phelps. And he came into the individual medley, 400 individual medley, barely made it into the final. And uh, then didn't even medal, got fourth. What happened? Well, I was looking and reading about that, and they said he was... He did not really train for this. He picked. He decided to go back into this at the last minute. So even if you're as gifted as a Michael Phelps, you still have to work. And that's true of God's gifts. But then the final thing I want you to understand about God's gifts is that the purpose of them is to glorify God and to serve and to edify the church. Not to glorify oneself, not to be able to pat oneself on the back, but it's to glorify and edify the church. Now, how do we apply this? And I'm going to make some applications in, in going back um, <clears throat> to... To some of this, but the way I want to apply it is, is to first to look at, because of where we're at with the modern charismatic movement. Um, in the Reformation, there was a group they called them the Schwermer, the enthusiasts. Uh, you had a, a group that was kind of like that, and some of them did radical things, did awful things. 19th century, we had the revivals, and you had all kinds of uh, different things going on there. But when we look about the, at the modern charismatic movement, it's usually related back to the Azusa Street Revivals. I believe they were in 1906. And uh, then it came the rise of Pentecostalism. And some of you may be familiar with the name of John Wimber, who more recently uh, became basically one of the founders of the Vineyard. And uh, I remember hearing John Wimber talk and about, uh, you know, uh, why uh, the charismatic gifts are so important. And he basically said, I was looking at the Bible and I thought, where's the stuff? And the stuff he's referring to is all the miracles. He just wanted all the miracles. And of course, the, my question to that is, why? Why do we want all that? Why do you want the power for yourself? So you can wield it? Maybe we need to look at what that power is, and we will look at, at why there was some of this stuff in the early church. 
Or the question is, are you concerned more about the gospel going out and the praising of God? Now, I have two problems in terms of the charismatic movement. One, and I'm going to take the first, and the, the first problem I have is their errors. The second problem I have is those who have opposed their errors wanting to cut them off so completely. You know, and that's, uh, those are the two problems. So I, let me take the first one. What are some of the errors? Some of the errors of the charismatic mu uh, movement. Um, well, first, one of the first errors, I and mean, of course it, it really centers on tongues. One of the errors that they has been said is that tongues is a second blessing. You know, you can get saved and then you have to give tongues and that means you've got the Holy Spirit. No, that's not biblical at all. Uh, you know, you have the Holy Spirit without having tongues uh, at all. And there is no second, second blessing. Now, I know some of them would refer to John or to Paul when he's in Ephesus and the people came and, and uh, they didn't have the, the Holy Spirit. They hadn't heard whether there was a Holy Spirit. Well, what does the Scripture say? They had received John's blood, baptism. What was John's baptism? John's baptism was a baptism unto repentance. It really didn't tell who the Savior was. It wasn't a Christian baptism. And so what we had... Uh, here was people who weren't yet saved that's what we had um, and so uh, <clears throat> we need to be very careful about that in addition tongues is not a universal sign of spirituality as I related earlier the Corinthian church was filled with tongues and yet Paul said you know you're babes you're carnal it is not a sign of spirituality. Now, was tongues a sign? It was a sign in the New Testament. But what was it a sign for? Well, I'll tell you what it was a sign for. It was a sign for the Jewish Christians to understand that Gentiles could actually be Christians. That's exactly what happened when, when Peter met with, uh, the, with Cornelius. Remember, even to get Peter to go there God had to give Peter this vision of these unclean animals coming down and God saying kill and eat and Peter saying not me I'm a good Jewish kosher boy I don't do that thing you know and, and, and God says wait a second if I tell you to do it you should do it and that way he got him to go and to preach to Cornelius but you can see that reserve still in Peter and finally, Cornelius hears the gospel. He receives the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then what does Peter say? Uh, who can prevent them from having baptism to be brought into the family of God? And that's why they received it. Push Peter along to understand that the Gentiles could be Christians as well. And so, again, first problem is that tongues is related to spirituality. It is not. The second problem, 
special revelation that I have supersedes scriptures. I knew of a family in Paxton that went to a charismatic church, five kids in the family, and somebody had some word of wisdom, quote, whatever, and, just, and told them that uh, these two shouldn't be together. Sadly, that was followed, and it destroyed that family. The point is, these gifts are used to edify the church. Not the Lord over one spiritually. You know, I've got a gift, so I've got an inside track, and you've got to listen to me no matter what. You know, it's just one of these things where you try to, to force these things on it and, and see, you, uh, look at me, I'm, I'm all spiritual. I was at a Promise Keepers event at, at one point, and I was with a man, and we started praying, and, and at that time the big thing was holy laughter. And so he started laughing, and it didn't make any sense, but he did. And I thought, well, what are you trying to say here? What are you trying to do? Let's just... You know, pray. And I, the other thing that happened at that thing is they had all their special music. It was so loud you could not hear yourself. And I looked around at the men, and I, I looked at the men, and they were all a little bit, a little bit older too. They're kind of in their forties. I said, "This isn't, you know, okay. We'll try, but you know." And and after a while, I think more in frustration than anything, the, the song leaders there. By the way, I mentioned the song leaders, not the worship leaders song leaders stop and he said um, let's just sing Amazing Grace acapella best thing happened all day long best thing happened you, it just really lifted your spirits these men really sang that but the problem I have on the other side of that, with all the problems there, is to turn around and say, and I suppose in some of these cases, some of these errors have moved over into heresy, and I can understand not having fellowship there, but they haven't all done that. We have good Christian brothers and sisters in the charismatic movement, used to have real good fellowship with a church in Newark, New Jersey, Assemblies of God Church, wonderful people, and had that. And you have a problem there. And the problem is uh, there's some people, because of the problems that they've had with charismatics and the difficulties, they want to cut them off completely. You don't want to have any fellowship. Uh, I'll let you know, one of my licensure holdups was over 1 Corinthians 13, where it says, where there are tongues, they will cease. There's a good segment of the... Pre PCA who believes that, that that means that tongues have ceased after the early church age. I do not. It could be. Could be. Very possible. But the scriptures aren't that specific. And since the scriptures aren't that specific, I'm not going to be that specific. And the problem was, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say tongues have ceased for this day. And so there was an attempt to, to, to make me uh, sound like 
I was in favor of tongues, which, believe me, problems I've had in the past it couldn't have been farther from the truth. But I want to be careful with Scripture, not to make it say something it doesn't. It could be that that's true, but I'm not going to go out on that limb. In addition to that, I also, uh, years ago, Karen and I had applied to a missions group working among uh, American Indians. And one of the mission group's uh, statement of faith uh, demanded that uh, we would have no, no contact or fellowship in any way, shape, manner, or form with anyone that was charismatic. I says, I can't go along with that. Yeah, I may disagree with them, but I don't think I shouldn't have any contact. Nevertheless, when we look at these things, you know, uh, the Spirit still is working. The Spirit works in our lives. And one of the key things we need to do is to see, what does the Holy Spirit want me to do? What has He gifted me for? And that's something that we need to spend time in prayer and looking and in other people encouraging and and in humility, always in humility before God, realizing that even if we have God has gifted us with the greatest gift, maybe God doesn't want us to use that gift at that time. God will do what he will do with us. And that's what we need to do. And when we have that, it's amazing what God will do. In the middle, early part of the uh, 20th century, there was a, a young man who wanted to be a missionary. He wanted to be a missionary to China. His name was Kenneth Pike. I mentioned him before. I love his story. He went to the Chinese inland mission, and they basically, basically what they, they tell him, we can't use you. First off, you're a frail, nervous type of individual. Second, you have no aptitude for language. He didn't give up. He went to Wycliffe Bible Translators. We went to one of their camps. And at the end of their camp, their thought was, God, couldn't you have sent us somebody better? <laughs> <laughs> but you know, this man was humble. And he just came to God, just open, and let God fill him. You know what God gave him the gift of? Language. Kenneth Pike become, became one of America's and one of the world's greatest linguists because he was open before God. The earlier parts just showed us that he didn't have any natural aptitude. The second half of his life where he was this great linguist showed that it's a gift of God. And he used it to God's honor and glory. And that's what we need to do is look for our gifts and just use them to God's honor and the building up of his church. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, how thankful we are that you have gifted us. Lord, help us not to neglect our gifts, but to, to work on them, to stir them up as you told Timothy, and to uh, work on them and 
practice them, that we might honor you and build up your church. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.